0: Thank you, New York!
1: Today, we're reminded of the power of community and the power of coming
2: together. Athletes, on your mark!
3: The first woman to finish for the second straight year here in the New York City Marathon is Mickey Gorman, a smiling Mickey Gorman, and why not? 2.29.30, The time for a good
1: Look at the emotion of Shalane Flanagan as she
4: comes to the line, pointing to his chest, pointing to the USA, he so proudly wears across his chest a great day for Meb Kofleski.
1: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Set the Pace, the official podcast of New York Roadrunners. Great to have you with us, as always. I'm Rob Simulcare, the CEO of New York Roadrunners, joined as I am every week by my friend, the great Meb Kofleski, 2009 New York City Marathon Champion. Meb. Nice to see you. How's it going?
0: I'm doing well, Rob. How are you? How was your weekend?
1: Everything's good. We had uh, racing in New York this past weekend out in Brooklyn. I did not make the race this weekend. I don't make them all. But uh, we had a great uh, day, the Al Gordon 4-Miler. We'll talk about that. I know it was a beautiful day. and We had about 5,000 runners out there, so great day for Roadrunners. Congrats to everybody who was out there. We're back at it this coming weekend in Washington Heights. We got a 5K uh, coming up, so that'll be fun as well. And Meb, you had a big announcement last week. Of course, we always talk about you as the New York Marathon champion here, but this is the 10th anniversary of your legendary run and win in the Boston Marathon, and you had a big announcement about going back to Boston.
0: Rob, I did. It was a you know great honor to be able to be asked by ESPN and local TV to be able to come back announce the boston marathon but for my 10-year anniversary i want to be able to be on the roads of boston with my fellow runners as i celebrate uh, and bring attention to the Met foundation run, run for a cause uh, that i want always have been on my list so yes it is a big news uh, i am excited and uh, delighted to be able to announce it but also i had a big week this week to uh The Gaspar Distance Classic was here in Tampa, Florida, and people kind of heard about the news. They were wishing me a lot of luck, but at the same time, I ran a half marathon this weekend, so to kind of test out a little bit my body, see. I know I couldn't go physically, like the VO2 or fitness-wise, but I don't know how my muscle would be able to handle it, so... I ran the half marathon. I'm excited to say I broke 130, so, which is nice. not a walk in the park for me. I'm a little sore this morning. So <laughs> people think, hey, good luck. You're going to win Boston and 10 years later. It's not going to happen. I tried many years, but I'm there to celebrate and also to bring uh, uh, attention to the a foundation for maintaining excellent balance health, education, and fitness for young kids. So I'm super stoked for that and also had a big week this week. My, my youngest daughter just got confirmed. Uh, her confirmation was this week. So it's been a go, a busy weekend, but excited to get ready for many other things.
1: That's a big weekend. Congrats on all that. And Meb, I know that it's going to be so special in Boston um, this spring with you running on the 10th anniversary of your win. Of course, that win was so important for that race for the city of Boston, of course, because it came just a year after the the bombing at the Boston Marathon. And so I know the kind of regard you are held in in Boston, and I can't wait to see the celebration that it's going to be when Meb gets back on the streets of Boston to run the marathon. So glad you're feeling good. And, and, and we haven't talked about the Meb Foundation that much, Meb, but where can people go for more information on it? We'll talk about it more, I'm sure, as we get closer to the race.
0: Thanks, Rob. I'm excited to, to be able to be able to go back to Boston and celebrate. But the cause for the Meb Foundation is you can go to mebfoundation.org, and you can also, also go to MarathonMap.com has a link to the foundation. And, you know, we do our best we can as runners to get every the best out of ourselves. I did not understand the magnitude. I know I wanted to win the Boston Marathon for many years. But the day after I won the Boston Marathon, when President Barack Obama gave me a call to say, job well done. And that's when it kind of like it hit After across I, I the finish line. I went tears went down to my eyes. And but and then how big of a win it was. It was, made, made me realize when I got a call from the President of the United States. So wow, yeah. To go back in that time now, you know, and uh, it's going to be exciting. But at the same time, you know, 26.2 miles is 26.2 miles. So I got to put the train in it. Yes, you do. We all do. <laughs> but I can't wait to see how it plays out. We'll get weekly updates from you now from now till Boston
1: about how that's all coming along. All right. Well, this is a special episode of Set the Pace dedicated to Women's History Month. So joining us will be not just one, but two women who are each carving paths in women's running history, each in their own unique ways. Emily Sisson is the United States record holder in the Women's Marathon. She's a member of our brand new 2024 Olympic team as well, as she finished second in the trials in Orlando. She'll be joining us. Can't wait to talk to Emily and Danae Dormy, who's a citizen of the Navajo Nation, a lifelong runner and the host and producer of the Grounded podcast. She'll be joining us as well. And Meb, you know, this, of course, is a podcast hosted by two guys, but we do talk about women's running a lot on this podcast. There's so much energy in women's running in the United States right now. Our races at New York Roadrunners are regularly, if not 50 50, actually, sometimes we'll have a majority of women. Of course, we've got a number of races that are just for women The the MasterCard Mini 10K and the the uh, Real Simple Half Marathon coming up as well. So women are such a huge part of the running community, Meb, and it's just been fascinating to see the growth in that. From your perspective as an elite runner, someone who's been in the space for a long time, how have you seen women's running grow and become more mainstream, obviously accepted by everyone now and such a big part
0: of the sport? Rob, women's running is such a crucial and important part of history, and it goes back to probably like, 1967, Bobby Gibbs unofficially running the Boston Marathon and Catherine Swither, you know, getting, trying to get kicked off the course. And then, but women's were not participating in the Olympics past the 800 or 1500 mere until John Bonnoy 1984. And that is monumental. Those women were determined to get to that finish line so they can open up opportunities that we see now, which is robbed. The majority of the races are by women. so they are empowered to be able to just say we can do it just as a man. And I think I love the support that we have personally because it's 5K, 10K, half marathon, full marathon. If we can do it, they can do it. And it's just you know, great to be able to see even according to the professionals, the prize money even been equally paid for the women so i've been part of that personally to be able to witness that it feels like a natural thing for me to do but being student of the sport kind of helps you to reflect how far they have come and how much they have influenced the community they they live in and you know to just to run freely and be able to pace even with the guys sometimes and then you know i remember when i was training with dina casser mammoth lakes she would always say maybe she may get a minute or two and eight mile advance i'm like that's too much you gotta give her less and she was like and she would just whisper cash me if he can She just takes off so women's running is huge and, and i think especially in the u.s distance running has been very uh deep feel to be able to just represent and they're just great people to be around with
1: yeah it's amazing how quickly it's come so far i mean it wasn't that long ago when you know people would not let women run a marathon right the six who sat and all of that we're not talking about that long ago and now you look at the role that uh, women play so it's been great excited to celebrate women's history month here when it comes to running and two great conversations coming up as well but before we get to those We are going to talk about the MEB Minute as well. Of course, we're about three weeks away from the United Airlines NYC half. And so how are we all going to make our way through all these races while maintaining our best physical and mental health? A great way to do it is with training partners, of course. And so MEB will be back at the end of the show with the MEB Minute to talk about training partners and the importance of finding a great partner. But we got a big show with some great guests coming up for you this week, so let's get right into it. Now, as we mentioned earlier, tomorrow is the start of Women's History Month. So for this special episode, we're going to be talking to two women who are blazing some incredible trails in the sport of running. First up, professional runner Emily Sisson. Emily, no stranger to the record book. She is the American record holder for the marathon and previously held the record for the half marathon as well. And of course, earlier this month, she captured a spot on her second Olympic team with a second-place finish at the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials in Orlando. Emily, congratulations on your second trip to the Olympic Games, and welcome to Set the Pace.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's fun to be here.
1: It's really an honor. And um, so I just want to take you back a little bit going into Orlando. I mean, clearly the expectations from everybody who follows this sport, and I presume yourself as well, Emily, is that you are expected to make this team. You had put up the the times in the past that had sort of earned you that respect, you were looking to obviously get the finish you needed. How hard was it to go into a race like that with those expectations already there and manage to perform at the level that you needed to do it?
3: Yeah, the pressure, it's definitely part of it. It's something I've had to learn how to manage. Uh, It's something I started learning how to manage ever since college. And it it is nice when you can go into a race and be the underdog and just feel like you're trying to compete with the best. And um, and that is what I'm doing, regardless of when I'm racing or what the expectations are. But uh, when you do have the added pressure, it can be a little harder. So uh, what I usually do, and what I did in Orlando was um, I, I took a step back and I'm like, OK, I'm not the favorite going into this race. I'm one of a lot of like a lot of really um, strong women right now in the U.S. that are trying to vie for a spot on The U.S. Olympic team and uh, and I prepared well. This is going to be a hard race. This is not going to come easy, but no um, no Olympic team does. <laughs> so uh, so I just tried to focus on what my goals were for the day. What um what like brought myself back to I guess the process of what I was trying to do. Like what's the goal here? The goal here is to compete against the best people in the country, run a smart race, and um, and hopefully come away with a top three spot. But yeah, I try not to go into any race feeling or thinking too much about all the noise that's going on around me or what other people expect or think or who the favorites are. I'm, I'm aware that's going on, but I try to pull myself back and really just focus on what it is um, I want to do and what I need to do to get there.
0: Well, you know, Emily, pressure is inevitable, uh, especially when you are the American record holder and that all eyes are on you, even though Cara D'Amato was also the previous record holder. And how I always been kind of curious. Is there more pressure going to the trials or is there more pressure going to the Olympics?
3: Uh I it's different types of pressure, but I do I do think the trials carries a bit more pressure, um, external pressure, because the there's a lot of expectation to to make the team and get to the Olympics. And then when you're at the Olympics, it's uh <laughs> It just kind of feels like you're on like the biggest stage in the world. You've got absolutely like nothing to lose. <laughs> just just go for it. See what can happen. And if you blow up, like you went trying. <laughs> so at the U.S. Olympic Trials, you have to you have to make sure you run a smart race because you can't risk anything like that. Uh, uh, there's not really a lot of room for error there. So I do think the pressure is different, but I'd say there's a little bit more with the trials.
0: Well, congratulations, and. And sometimes we said, you know, third is good as first or second place, just been on that team. I I personally feel the pressure is more on the trials just because there's no Olympics if you don't finish in the top three. Yeah, exactly. But it's really, you know, uh, for you to finish second and being on the team, being comfortable, is it like the pressure, like when people say, is third or second good as first going making known I'm going to Paris? How do you feel about that?
3: Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I want to win every race that I go into, but... Going into this past weekend or two weekends ago, it really was third is as good as first, second is as good as first. Everything's yeah, you're on the team. So that was uh, what I kept in mind during the race. And uh, yeah, I'm just elated. I'm so excited.
1: Emily, as that race played out, what were your thoughts as you went through? I mean, Fiona gets off to a tremendous start, really just kind of takes over the race. How aware were you of what she was doing? um how was it a concern for you or did you feel all along well okay you know she she was obviously uh, new to the marathon sport so you you may not have known what she could really do but even if she was able to hang on you kind of knew you had your second spot what was the mindset as she went off and kind of ran away with that race
3: yeah i was in a position where i was trying to decide should i go with her or should i hang back and uh focus on being top 3 and maybe try to rein her in Uh, towards the end of the race and I did decide to hang back but I was still in the back of my mind hoping that I could pick it up over the last four miles and contend for the win and she was just really strong she ran a really smart race she ran great and uh, and so yeah I wasn't able to close the gap on her but I am glad with the decisions I made because I like it was really really important to finish in the top three and so I, uh, I decided to hang back when she went and, um, and yeah, it worked out well. I I still would have loved to have gone for the win, but I I think she ran an amazing race. And so we're sending a really strong three to the Olympics and it's going to be exciting this summer.
1: And I I know Emily, that there are other women in the race you've got relationships with talk to, I think Kira D'Amato was, was, was certainly someone that has had such success in the race. And as, as the race plays out and you're. You're not seeing Kira. Obviously, she didn't have a great day, ended up pulling out, I think, around mile 21. What what was your awareness of that? And how, how, if at all, did it kind of affect you not seeing Kira there near you?
3: Yeah, uh, to be honest, I was so focused on my own race that I wasn't really uh, as aware of what was going on around me. I didn't realize she pulled out. I, I didn't know until after the race, actually. And that's kind of just how the marathon is. You're just so, like, you're racing the people around you. Like, you are trying to race your competition, but you're also racing the marathon itself. And that's what's different, I find, than other distances that I race because, um, in like a 10k or half marathon, uh, for example, I, I don't have to worry about all these other variables, um, hydrating, um, like preventing cramps, <laughs> um, managing, uh, like, like trying to prevent bonking or something, you're just like, you have so much more you're juggling that it, it is important to be aware of the race that's going on around you and, um, respond to moves that are made and make good decisions. But you also have to really measure your effort to race the marathon itself. And, uh, and so, yeah, I guess that's a long winded way of saying I, um, it didn't really affect my race plan much seeing who was around me or who wasn't around me. But, um, but yeah, it just, that's how the marathon is. (laughs) The marathon is just a different beast entirely. So, uh, yeah, it's tough when you have a tough day and I feel for Kira because I know what that's like. And um, and you work so hard and you only get to run so many every year. But uh, when things do click and you do have a good day or um, you have a good day when things weren't clicking, it can be so rewarding. So uh, that's why I guess we keep coming back to it.
0: According to your performance, so did that day click for you? We know that it's seamless when it goes flawless and just amazing, you know. Or did you make that decision knowing that, you know, in the marathon we go through the good phase and bad phase? At what point in stage were you when you when Fiona made that move? Were you in a good place or were you said you know, a little bit of, I don't know how things are going. What were your mental status at the point?
3: Yeah, I was struggling mentally a bit earlier in the race than I expected because I was experiencing some cramping and uh i'm still not sure what caused that i think it might might have to do with how much water i'm drinking but um so it was actually a little like um my confidence took a bit of a hit early on in the race but i was able to kind of like calm down and pull it together and towards the end i actually like started to feel pretty good again so um i never feel like i have it in a race i don't know if it's just like ingrained in me to run to the finish line or um or what but like i I think like I, I knew Fiona was ahead, and there was like a bit of a gap between me and Dakota. But I still was like, just keep running strong, keep running this pace, pick, like pick it up the last mile. And um, and yes, yeah, so I, I I forget where your question started, but um, I I think I I just tried to run as strong as I could, and then uh, have a, a good day.
1: And you did. You had a good day and you got the job done. So, Emily, this is not your first Olympics. It's going to be your first Olympics marathon, of course, but you did uh, make the team in the 10,000 meters uh, in Tokyo uh, in 2020 and became 21 with the pandemic. How do you think it's going to be different, Emily? You know, getting your mind ready for an Olympics, preparing for an Olympics, and then just the Olympics experience, knowing that you're running the marathon, which of course is the last day of the Olympics, the day of the closing ceremony. How is that going to be different for you than it was getting ready for the 10,000?
3: It's going to be a completely different race. It's a completely different event. And, um, it's going to be interesting because the course itself, I can't even picture. It's a really challenging course. It's, uh, it's not rolling hills, but it's got this one massive hill in the middle. (laughs) So that'll be something I've never really trained for before preparing for that. So that's kind of a fun challenge. I'm excited about that. So that's one thing that's gonna to be totally different than preparing for the track. Uh, and then, yeah, I don't know, there's just something exciting about race, racing the marathon at the Olympics, it seems. Um, so just that idea really has excited me for so long. So uh, I'm just, yeah, I'm looking forward to that and looking forward to the the training block I'm gonna put in before that and just getting to celebrate then in Paris with my family and friends after, who I know wanted to be in Tokyo, but um, understood the reasons why. So uh, it, it'll just be nice having them there this time.
0: You know, I talk a lot about visualization uh, in preparation for the Olympics or for your next races. How are you? I know you're in a downtime right now, but are you doing any visualization? Because everybody dreams to go to Paris and fancy destination yeah. place. But how are you visualizing yourself now, the course, or what are you going to do, or and especially been toward the closing ceremony for you?
3: Yeah, I I've been visualizing a little bit here and there. I'm still so far away. I'm six months out, but it's kind of interesting because the course, like I said, has a big hill in it, but then it's really flat on either end of the hill. So in my mind, sometimes I'm picturing myself like running up or down that hill, but then I'm also picturing myself trying to close really fast over the last 10 K or as fast as I can, um, for like the last 10 K of a marathon, because, uh, cause that part's really flat. So, um, so yeah, sometimes i kind of just picture trying to come off like come off the downhill, like feeling good and having some momentum. Um, so I visualize that a little bit, but, uh, once I start training, I'm sure I'll be thinking of it a bit more. So what I would love is if someone in Paris would, uh, drive the course and like take a video of it so I could actually visualize it.
1: (laughs) Emily, you have had so much success on, you know, these generally fairly flat, fast courses, Chicago, of course, where you set the U.S. record, Orlando, Florida, fairly flat as well. What do you think is going to have to be different for you from a training point of view to get ready for a course that, as you've mentioned, has a little bit of elevation gain in Paris?
3: Yeah, I'll have to change my training. I do a lot of training on the bike paths in Providence, getting ready for Chicago. Uh, And for London, I would do something similar. But what gives me confidence, actually, is I I know I I didn't have a great day in Atlanta and that course was pretty hilly, but I don't think it's there. And I don't believe deep down that I can't run well on hills. I've run well on hilly courses that weren't marathons before, like the New York City half. So uh, thinking of races like that, I'm like, I know I can handle them. I just need to prepare probably a bit better for them. And I need to be a little bit smarter in my training, too. I don't want to... I don't want to like train so hard on the hills that I leave my marathon in practice, but I also don't want to underestimate them and not do enough training. It's finding that happy medium, and that's what I found with marathon training. You're constantly trying to find that like range of like doing enough to prepare, but not overdoing anything. So yeah, I think um, we'll find some hilly spots in Flagstaff, Arizona. That will be really easy. In Providence, we're going to have to get a little creative, but uh, we'll find some hilly spots and do workouts there.
0: Well, Emily, you know, the beauty of the hills is an equalizer, you know, for me. Yeah, yeah. Finishing uh, second, like you at the trials in 2004, and be able to go to Athens, you know, even though the world record holder was five minutes up me. And, uh, you know, he did not finish in the top six. He was eighth, Paul Turga, that is. So I know, probably know what your goals are, but what are your, you know, vision for that, you know, to be able to just say, you know, you know there have been John Bonoit, Dina Kasser, and uh, Molly Seidel, you know, and, yeah. you know, I know you have a strong team with Fiona and uh, Dakota, but how are you, uh, been, been what advice do you have for them to be able to work on this on this marathon team?
3: Yeah, I think I, all three of us, I, I feel like after watching Molly Seidel run so well and medal uh, in Sapporo, I think we should all be like, putting ourselves out there and seeing what can happen uh getting a medal in the olympics is not an easy feat by any means um but like i don't think any of us should count ourselves out of that we've seen people we've seen americans do before so um so yeah i think i'd just say like don't yeah don't count yourself out just uh put yourself in it and see what happens it's it is different than the trials like we said earlier um it feels like you don't have anything to lose so yeah.
1: Emily, how well did you know uh, either of your your new teammates uh, before the trials? Fiona O'Keefe for Dakota Lindworm. Have you have you spent much time with them? Have you guys started a text chain yet to start uh, communicating a little <laughs> bit? Like, give me a sense of the the dynamics there and 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 how you expect that to to go down.
3: Yeah, I um, I had actually never met Dakota before. I met Fiona briefly when she was in high school. Actually, I met her, and we were talking a bit about that after the race. I was in college, and she was in high school when I met her. Um, but yeah, we just started following each other on Instagram. And uh, I haven't started a text message, uh, a group message yet. But I think that'll happen probably before sometime before Paris. So uh, yeah, but they're I mean, they're awesome. They're really cool. They're really nice. They're hardworking, um, humble. And they're just Yeah, I think we're sending a good team.
1: It must be amazing for you, you know, as a a relatively experienced marathoner. But what you're like four marathons into your career yourself, so you haven't been doing it forever. And to see, uh, you know, someone like Fiona do what she did in her first marathon, what do you make of of that? You know, that this incredible success that you see people like Fiona and others have moving up to the marathon distance for the first time, and what does it tell you about, you know, the ability that maybe some other you know women out there who are maybe focused on 5k, 10k, what would you say to them when it comes to the possibility of stepping up to the marathon and having success?
3: Yeah, I'd say uh like respect the distance, but don't um don't fear it, I guess. It's it's definitely hard and it's challenging and it's like no other distance I race, but uh, but us women's distance running is just really on fire right now. It genuinely is. So I think we're going to see even more women step up in the next few years and just light the roads on fire. So why Emily, why do you time. think
1: it's so hot? Why do you think American women mm. are having this moment?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it was like due to happen. I think based on the woman before us, I like, I do genuinely believe, um, like Joan Samus, and she paved the way. And then after her came Dina. And then it was like, uh, like Shalane and Kara kind of overlapped at the same time, closely followed by like Des and Molly Huddle. And, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger each, uh, I don't want to say generation, cause we're not all that far apart in age, but each, each group, <laughs> um, each group just keeps getting bigger and deeper. And I mean, I can even see that like right now, looking at like the college women that are running, I'm, like amazed at how fast they're running right now and how well they're running. And I was saying to my husband the other day, I'm like, I'm kind of glad I'm not in college right now <laughs> because because they're running so fast, but I mean, and they're going to be up and coming and then it's going to be their turn next. So, uh, yeah, I just think it's the evolution of the sport and it's exciting and it's making us all step up our game. And, um, what's that phrase? Like iron sharpens iron or something like that. So yeah, there's a lot of phrases like that, but, uh, so long-winded way of saying, I think it just, it's been a long time coming.
0: Well, Iron Sharp and Iron, I know you and Molly Hato training together was a big part of it. And especially at the 2017 NYC, United, United yeah. Airlines NYC half marathon. Can you go go walk us over it? Because you had an amazing, she won the race, but you were close second with a great debut on the half marathon. Can you walk us over that race?
3: Thank you. Yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah, you, you know about that race. Um, Yeah, I... Molly Huddle was always just such a, we were technically teammates, but I've always seen her as a mentor. And she's been very generous, letting me just learn and watch her career unfold. And um, and I just think it says a lot about Molly, because she really helped me a lot as I was um, coming up in the sport. And I don't know exactly what I gave back, because I just wanted to be like her. I wanted to uh, have a career like her. And she just generously let me follow along, which was really cool. Um, but yeah, I remember at that race, the New York city half uh, in 2017, I was shocked. It was just me and Molly there at the end. And I almost felt like I had no business running right next to her because in my mind, I'm like, this is like Molly huddle. Like what, what am I doing here? Um, and I, in the end, she out kicked me at the very end, but it still was a huge, uh, just, I don't know, eye-opening kind of experience to know I could race the Mo- Molly huddle. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and so, yeah, that actually I think was a race that kind of, uh, showed me I was on another level and gave me a lot of confidence and especially gave me a lot of confidence going forward in the longer distances. So, so yeah, I guess that started in New York.
0: Well, Iron I like you said, but you had a great mentorship in Molly Hutto and we see kind of see that at, uh, you know, Utah now with uh, Connor Mintz and Clayton Young. What advice would you give them? Because I know there is no mentorship, but, you know, we see that one to punch, like you guys did, the have now at the, at the trials. What advice would you have in terms of longevity?
3: longevity uh well i mean they seem to be doing really well <laughs> um on their own right now but i guess for longevity in the sport um, you know, because you know
0: sometimes you work hard together you want to get the best effort yeah. but knowing when the easy days or hard days because you're there to help each yeah. other that kind of mentality
3: yeah yeah i think um like knowing when to like push and when to pull back is really important for not preventing like physical or mental burnout like making sure um I think that's helped me a lot of having like a long career is knowing when to go like all out on my race days and then in practice when it's like good just to check the boxes and make sure you're getting everything done you need to get done. Um, But then I think also just like creating a positive work environment is really important because it is such a hard, hard sport at times. And I I love it. I love my job, but it is very physically um, and even emotionally, just uh, it can be tough. So I think just making sure you're in a good environment, you're being the kind of teammate that you want to have as a teammate. Um, You can have like having people you can rely on and lean on when you need to. And also being that person for your other uh, teammates or people that are up and coming is probably pretty important. So I guess, uh, yeah, be the teammate you would like to have as a teammate, I guess.
1: Emily, one thing uh, that I, I'm sure some of the other runners in that trials were thankful for was your involvement. I know a lot of runners were involved in working to move the start time of that race up. I think the original start time was 12 noon local mm-hmm. time. You guys got it moved back to 10 a.m. or so local time a little bit earlier. And I was there in Orlando, as was Meb. You know, by, by noon, it, it was heating up. It was definitely getting warm. Was, was that really the, the impetus? And, and talk about you know, why you felt it was so important to get that race started earlier.
3: Yeah. So I was pretty happy they moved it to 10. Uh, I actually didn't think the day we had was that horrible uh, when as like as far as florida goes anyway because i was training there for three weeks prior and the main reason i was um a proponent of pushing it forward to 10 a.m was i i didn't really want it i didn't want it at 6 a.m i didn't want it anything like crazy early but um i i just thought like there was a like a risk of it starting at noon it could just be um too extreme and like i was there for the three weeks before and there were some days where it was like in the 80s, and like the dew point was like 71 or something. And I was like, okay, if we had a marathon starting at noon today, like that, that could be a bit of a disaster. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, we kind of did luck out with the weather. And I think like having it at 10 a.m. ensured no matter what uh, kind of day you got in Florida, it wasn't going to be just this bloodbath and um, or anything like too I- extreme, I guess. So, and I thought um, Orlando themselves did an amazing job uh like preparing having all the bottle stations there if we needed extra water or sponges um yeah i think they they also had extra gel packets and they were just awesome they did such a good job they told us where everything was going to be everything went so smoothly so um so yeah i I hope they get a lot of credit for how well they did because that was a great race they did a great job putting it on and i um, I felt really taken care of as an athlete, so it was, that a great, was really cool. Great event. Yeah. You
1: know, the crowds are incredible. The energy yeah. there was great. How, how much did you feel that? I mean, it was really uh, just a great scene in Orlando. Yeah. People out with the American flags and incredible enthusiasm for that event.
3: Yeah. Oh, it it was awesome. I actually thought it was the perfect amount of crowds. <laughs> so, like, because there are parts of this, like, I was never in any part of Orlando where there were no people. Like, there were always crowds spread out everywhere. But it, there was like the right amount of people. I could actually hear like my coach or my husband um, like or just I could hear what people were saying on the side of the roads. So I thought it was uh I, I thought it was great. The energy was awesome and like the crowds really did kind of carry me to the finish line the last couple of miles. So um so yeah, I hope people know when you're cheering for the athletes, like we do like like it helps us we feed off of it and um it it's very encouraging.
0: You know, it was Great to have in Orlando, and when was the first time that you visualized yourself? you know you're getting ready for Paris now you send out from Orlando. but can you tell us a little bit of your early stage of running where how running kind of sparked the energy for you
3: Oh yeah I, I don't have a really unique story. I started running to get um, to help me as a soccer player, so I think that's how so many uh, so many of the top, uh, us runners actually got into running was through similar, uh, we were, a lot of us were soccer players. So I actually never really visualized the Olympics or anything until maybe, um, I think I was in college and I knew I wanted to be a professional runner, but, um, when I was younger, I actually used to think about the Olympics as like a soccer player. Mia Hamm was my, um, was my idol.
0: <laughs> awesome.
1: That kind of endurance, uh, in soccer would really do you well, right? You're running up yeah. and down a field. Uh, you need to be able to stay fresh. And yeah, developing that I'm sure was helpful. And who knew it would lead you to where it's taken you in the sport of running. Uh, And you you, you just never know. At what point did the marathon really become a focus of yours? I mean, you were so successful at the 5K, 10K. Who was the first person who came up to you and said, Emily, I think you should really think about the marathon?
3: Uh, Well, thank you. I... I think I'd heard people mention it to me throughout college, actually, now and then. I'd get a comment here and there. Someone would say to me, I think you'd be good at the marathon someday. And I don't even know what they saw because I don't even know like what is a good predictor for who's good at the marathon. It's just, to me, something I'm still like I'm learning a lot about. But I did get comments like that a lot. And um, my coach has always been about a big picture, long-term approach. And I think when I graduated, he did say, uh, you know, I think you'd be a good marathoner someday. But um, but like we're going to like build up your mileage slowly over time. We're going to get you stronger as a runner and um, we'll like we'll get there. So um, so focused on the 5K and on the 10 and a half and just slowly like year after year um, got stronger and fitter. And then when I did do my first marathon in 2019, I felt ready to like tackle a distance. So um, so, yeah, it's like it's a challenge, but it's a really fun challenge. And I'm glad uh, we took like a long term approach to get here.
0: What is going to your head going in the last week or the last getting to the starting line as you tore up, you know, for the marathon? You know, you know, you have success, American record holder, you have uh, runner up and then also great at London and in, in Chicago second place. Can you give us a little bit of ideas like, okay, I've done the work, I have the experience. What is, what is in Emily's head at that point?
3: Well, I'm really hoping I have a, like a smooth, good buildup going into Paris, but then I just like assuming that happens and, um, I get there feeling fit and strong. I'm just gonna, I I don't know. I'm just gonna be so excited. I'll feel like I have nothing to lose. And, uh, and yeah, so, um, hope the crowds are amazing. It'll be interesting because it's a bit of an out and back course. So I don't know if it'll be what the crowds will be like, but, uh, but yeah, I just think I'm, I'll be really excited for the opportunity and just to see what happens.
1: Emily, you know, as well as you did in Orlando, it's, it's even more impressive because you had a little bit of a distraction, uh, in December, I believe before the trials, (laughs) I'm following you on Instagram. And it was sometime in December, you you're coming out with, Hey, everybody, I'm in the Phoenix area. And my, my dog is lost. Can somebody help me find my dog? Can can you, can you explain what happened? Where where, did your dog go? And how did you get, how did you get him back?
3: people actually did help me find it. So I was kind of worried because I did not think he wandered off and I was like pa- I was actually panicking. I was so nervous. So my husband and I we rescued um a beagle and he's a beagle that was used in animal testing. So uh beagles are the most commonly used breed for animal testing. So mm-hmm. we rescued him about a year ago and he's not actually a beagle that like wanders off really. Um Beagles are known
1: for that, you know, they They are are known for wandering off. Yes,
3: they are. I grew up with one, so I do know that he would always like go the perimeter of a backyard anytime we were at someone's house looking for a way to escape. And so it is possible he wandered off, but we were in an Airbnb and he was in the backyard just like laying in the sun. I was cooking lunch and then I went outside and he wasn't there. But what scared me a bit was um, like, I couldn't figure out how he got out. There was like, it was like a six foot concrete wall. And then there was one gate, but it like it was closed and it's like a gate that wouldn't self-close. Um, so I was like, well, people help me find my dog. <laughs> and I think we figured out what happened, actually. Um, so basically, like runners actually, they did post on the Nextdoor app, like a picture of him. And then um, and someone eventually called and had him. But what we figured out happened was actually there was like a, a neighbor, uh, like a, a little boy, like a 10 year old boy that was in the neighborhood who had lost the tennis ball. Uh, and he was like going into people's backyards looking for it and I think our dog just got out but Uh. I was like so scared I was like oh no where'd my dog go (laughs) and um and luckily like someone saw the the, like not the ad but the the picture for him on next door up and we got a phone call but I don't know he's just my like little like beagle and I just feel so protective of him especially with his history I'm just like I want to protect you from everything. He's oh, adorable.
1: I've seen same. the pictures of him. And I've got two dogs as well oh, do who you? are, well, they're like escape artists. I mean, they they, they are what very adept I? at, so they're Woodles. They're Wheaton Terrier Poodle mix. Oh,
3: and they're they're, the
1: Wheaton's part of them is the one that likes to escape. And they'll dig under fences. Yeah. They will They will survey the entire area to figure out the weak link. And then eventually get out to go yep. start trouble. So it, it's happened. They've gotten out so many times. I don't even get that worried anymore. I'm just like, okay, yeah. well, they'll be back soon enough. But it can be a little <laughs> unnerving when your dog is, is is out and about.
3: I know. Yeah. It's I, if you're used to it, I feel like I, get, I had my beagle all the time growing up, and we, he'd eventually always walk back, and we'd be like, okay, like to do a fun adventure. But yeah. um, <laughs> but with this guy, we were on an Airbnb, and I just was like, yeah, definitely. Panicking a little bit, but dogs are yeah, they're part of your family. So yeah, and I'm sure it
1: helps you stay loose and relaxed, right? I mean, it definitely is nice to have that companion to keep you calm. Yeah. And another companion you've got keeping you calm, of course, is your husband. Like at least oh, I yeah. hope he's keeping you calm most of the time. T- <laughs> talk about that and what the what what's it meant for you? I mean, you guys have a partnership, right? That's obviously a marriage, but it's also a, a, a running partnership as well. What does it mean to you, and how does it help you? to have a partner aligned with you that way and everything that you're doing.
3: Yeah. He's a huge part of my career. So my husband actually, um, a few years ago, he decided to really go all in with me on my career, which was very, um, selfish of him because he has a job that he really loves and you can tell he gets a lot out of it. And a lot of his clients love working with him. He's a therapist. Um, but a few years ago, I was struggling with some injuries and I wasn't able to stay healthy. Um, actually talked to meb back then uh, asking for advice and my husband was like you know what like let's just for one year like let's just see what happens if we like go all in on um moving across the country investing in getting really good quality treatment um doing all the altitude sea level training together having um me help you with all your workouts and it was like really selfless on his part because he had to take a step back from his career in order to help me with mine and we were like let's just see what happens give it a year and then that year my career really did just kind of like um that's when I it kind of did start to take off so uh so yeah it's so nice having um just his support and having him there through all this he uh is a runner himself so he knows the sport so well and then having um you know having his like sports like background as well is, is helpful on another level but yeah just having a partner that's really um, all in with you and really invested with you just to, uh, have someone like by your side in your corner. Like that's really, um, really special.
0: You know, you and Dina Kasser, as I was training with her, Andrew Kasser was her massage or physical therapist person. And yeah. you guys were, have, yeah. you scored on that one in terms of being healthy, you know, because, <laughs> you know, they can pace you, they can work on you, kind of see what's going yep. on. And, uh, but you know, what is he's, you know, all in to be able to be part of the team, but, what does it mean for you to be able to just kind of, hey, you know, on spare the moment, you know, hey, my hamstring is tight or whatever it is, when yeah. someone else has to wait, make an appointment and things like that? But how does, yeah. it, how does it come in handy for you?
3: Oh, it's, it's so handy. Like before a workout, if my ankle's a little jammed, I'd be like, Hey, my ankle's jammed. Do you mind helping me? Like he, he even knows how to <laughs> um help free it up a bit. Uh <laughs> It's like a million little things like that. It's hard to explain when people are like, Oh, so how does your husband help you with your job? And like, he literally does like all these, like th- these little things that actually add up and they're not so little, uh, between like pacing workouts, like, yeah, working on my ankle. <laughs> um, um, yeah, doing all the, like, uh, All the logistics with traveling and planning our Airbnbs and um, driving across the country for for our training camps. Um, Yeah, it's just been, yeah, it's been like a crazy last few years, um, all the moving and all the training trips we've done. But uh, it's been so cool and so special to have him there for every step of it.
1: All right, Emily, before we let you go, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a chance. You've got Meb here. He he he's been down the Olympic marathon path himself with some <laughs> success. Uh any any questions you have from Meb or advice you wanna ask Meb in terms of getting yourself set and ready for Paris?
3: Uh yeah, what's your biggest piece of advice, would you say, approaching an Olympic marathon?
0: Well, I'm in the same route as you, I guess. Uh in 2000, I made that to the Olymp- them 10K team and finished that and then 2004 uh, in the marathon. So being able to just have that experience in the 10K is going to be huge benefit for you because you're an Olympian, you've been there before, whereas the marathon might be different distance, but you're going to be able to just get the best out of yourself by surrounding yourself with teams that you have done and visualize those moments to you know, that hill that you're talking about, you know, when you go up that hill, you got to say, I'm, I'm conquering that hill. So by the time the race comes, it's second nature, but, you know, it got you what, what the work ethic that you have done and your team got there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change that thing. Just kind of focus on what the course is going to be like and hydration and, and, uh, you know, to be able to just splits of, of time to be able to just want to take the, the, the gels and things like that. And then also my one other one is the humidity. How do you Now that's, you know, even sit in the sauna or run in the middle of the day with wearing sweats. Don't be just because, you know, t-shirt and shorts and things like that. You got to be uncomfortable a little bit so you can have easier transition when it's in Paris in, in August.
3: Good advice. Thanks, Bob.
1: All right. Well, Emily, we're thrilled to have you with us. It's been great talking to you. Congrats to you, to Shane, to your Beagle, uh, to, to your entire <laughs> team, everybody get New Balance as well. By the way, we want to point out, I know they support you and you're a part of Team New yeah. Balance. So congrats to them. And we're just very, very pleased to see how well you've done. Hope to see you in New York. I know you're going to be a little busy getting ready for Paris, but maybe, uh, maybe we'll see you in New York along the way. That'd be nice.
3: Thanks. I think I'm actually scheduled to be down for the New York City half. So I'll be not racing, but I'll be there.
1: Well, fantastic. We can't wait to see you. That's great. We'll see you on the sidelines cheering folks on, and uh, it'll be great. So congratulations. Enjoy your downtime. You've earned it, uh, and uh, we will see you very soon.
3: Thank you. See you soon.
1: Our next guest on this special episode of Set the Pace is a citizen of the Navajo Nation, a lifetime runner, and a self-identified running nerd. Danae Dormy has always been a big runner. In fact, running has always been a part of her daily routine and an integral part of the deep connection to the land. She's the host of the Grounded podcast, which explores the confluence of running, community, land, and culture. And she's also a member of the New York Roadrunners Contributors Circle, which is a cohort of runners that Roadrunners established with the intent to elevate the voices and the stories of historically underrepresented members of the running community. Danae, it's so great to have you here on Set the Pace. Thanks for joining us.
4: Thanks so much for having me. It's so good to see you, Rob. Um I feel like I was in New York quite a few times this past fall and winter and it's always just a joy to work on stuff with New York Road Runners. So, yeah, I'm really excited to be here.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you. And you know, we we oftentimes like to start by asking people about how they got to running. You know, what what brought them to running? And I know sports was a, a big part of your childhood, but running is also a big part of your culture in in the Navajo Nation. Can you talk about what running means for for Navajo people in general and then what that means for you personally?
4: Yeah, um, I think – What's interesting is that my start in running really didn't come necessarily from my culture initially, just because as a child, I grew up with a dad who was um, a women's track coach. So it was really cool hearing you all introduce Women's History Month and talk about the importance of you specifically as you know men hosting this podcast, bringing that up. And I, I appreciate that because I grew up with a dad who really valued women's sports and made sure to... Bring that into our home. And of course, I was an athlete who got to play basketball for my dad and uh, run track for my dad. And then, of course, watch him coach a bunch of my friends and uh, send a lot of, a lot of different girls onto Division One careers. Um, you know, he coached at the high school level here in Albuquerque for uh, several decades, and I got to watch him win a state championship when I was a really young kid. So things like that really stick with you, and I think running was uh, just such a big part of our life because of that. I was going to track meets with him at a, at a really young age. Uh, but on the flip side, I also grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where there's a ton of native runners everywhere. So I think for me, I was really – blessed honestly to to actually see people who looked like me running pretty often um, whether that was just here in like urban trails or areas where I live but also actually in like 5k races you know half marathons my parents ran half marathons all the time so they were running probably every night and my parents like primary friend group and community was the runners that they, uh you know, met up with at a popular running spot that we would go to like every single night. <laughs> so I think that was a really that was a really uh, great moment for me. But my mom is uh, the parent that is Navajo. So my dad is Mexican and also Yaqui. But my my mom is really uh, the one who brings that Navajo influence into our home. Navajo is a matriarchal culture. So I think being passed down things from your mom is really, really natural for us. And um, even though a lot of people associate running with my dad and my household and my story, my mom was a huge runner, too, because for her, it was really culturally significant. And she grew up running cross country, but also understanding that it was something that was a form of prayer for us. And so I think as I got older and could understand that a little bit more, she would find ways to weave that into my own story because I was not a particularly talented runner at the time so um or maybe still I think I'm more of a more of the back of the pack slower pace runner uh I was more focused on basketball growing up but I think to find that joy in it it was really nice to have my mom make those connections for me of like hey there's a second um and and maybe more important reason that you're out here and I really appreciated that
0: Daniel, thank you for that great story. It sounds kind of very similar to Shalane Flanagan's story where her parents were athletes and it kind of was normal for her to see the track meets or cross country. But can you go and tell us the first time that you ran, now not, you are a runner, whether you run a 5K, 10K, half marathon, full marathon, you are a runner, but can you go back to the time when you were exposed to it, but when was the first time you actually ran?
4: Yeah, I remember this uh little like kids fun run I did. And I think, I think it's because there's just so much joy in running when you're a kid. Like I definitely have a ton of memories running on a basketball court with my dad or kind of just messing around and playing in grass. But I think when I really identified that what I really liked to do was run, uh, was definitely when my parents like entered a 5k or something like that. And, uh, it was, in a it was at this local uh, trail nearby our house like less than a mile away probably and they hosted a kids run and it was the first one my parents put me in and it was super short it was like one long straight away but I remember uh, I still actually vividly remember it's funny to have conscious memories from when you're pretty young I couldn't have been like older than I don't know I want to say like six or something like that um, but it was just this clear straightaway. And I remember I sprinted the entire thing and I got I got second place. And I remember that. And I remember like what a rush it was just to be running with people. And I think that's what I identified was really that I wasn't alone. It was like a ton of people around me. And I finally got to do something that my parents did all the time and watching them race so often. I think they always ran races together. So I would get a babysitter or someone, you know, maybe one of my dads athletes would watch me for the, the little bit that they're out there on the course so that really stuck in my memory and was a really big part of running for me and understanding that like i had i had a place there too
1: <laughs> danae people listening a lot of them probably don't know much about navajo culture i i, I don't so i'm going to ask a question because i'm curious myself you know we we talked earlier in the show about the strides women have made running over the last 50 years in Navajo culture, is it is it fairly normal in terms of having women be active in sports from a young age? Is that something that was an obstacle for you growing up? Or was it something that was always accepted and almost expected of you to be an active uh, participant in sports and things like that? You mentioned it's a maternal culture. I'm wondering if that applies to sports and, and running as well.
4: Thanks for that question. Um, I think For me, I feel like I always had a lot of access to sport, but I think there was a privilege, of course, in having my dad be directly coaching um, women's sport in front of me and welcoming me into that space. Um, And I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I think there are a lot of barriers today, probably, that are facing young Native women. I think the one that comes to mind for me, particularly, is safety, which there's so much we could go into about that. But, uh, you know, We are in an epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women in the U.S. And so I always think about like the top 10 cities on the list for um, that are the least safe for Native women Um, in right there in the top five is Albuquerque always and two other New Mexico cities. So I'm right in the middle of a place where I feel like I have to be very conscious of my awareness, you know, my surroundings, be very aware of my surroundings. Uh, But I think in terms of my culture, running is super like woven into the culture itself because it is seen as a way for all Navajo people to wake up, run to the East, greet the Holy people. Um, You know, it's a form of prayer itself, but maybe you are saying a prayer as well, or you are offering up some corn pollen or you are um, really being reverent to that, to that morning time and understanding that that's a time for the Holy people to recognize you and to, kind of gain discipline and be up and at it and understand the importance of moving your body first thing in the day. Um, so it's, it's really like baked into our traditional way of life. And on top of that, um, it's also a really big part of the Kinofta ceremony, which is um, a puberty ceremony for young Navajo women. So I think just having that be a part of of the culture, like at a young age, it is a, I would say it is a core memory for a lot of Navajo girls. Um, not everyone has a Kenauta. And for me, um, I grew up in an urban area and at the time, like my parents didn't have a lot of money. So that's actually a really, it was like a difficult thing for me to organize as a ceremony, but we went back home to my mom's, uh, my mom's house and my family's house all the time. And I think being able to just like run on the dirt out there and like understand that that's where my mom was running. And that's where generations of Navajo women have run in my family was always a really powerful thing for me um, since I was really young.
0: So the indigenous people. And then also like um, Navajos, can you tell us the difference? We know probably that some of the runners about the great Billy Mills and if you He's been student of the sport, you know, the Ryan Brave, his movie, and then later on was Brendan Leslie, who also was joined, trying to make the Olympic trial qualifier. Can you tell us a little bit of those people or distinguish of what in the community is like or, you know, what they went through?
4: Yeah. And it's funny you should ask because I feel like I that was so much of what I did with the podcast that I started. Uh, Grounded Pod for me was a way to not only kind of nerd out about running. I know that's a part of my intro is that I do love the sport so much from that side, but also learn about the history of Native people in kind of modern American distance running and understanding that this is a tradition that goes back for so many different tribes, not just Navajo um, people. There's, you know, so many tribes in the U.S., Oh, you had 365 federally recognized tribes. And then beyond that, you even have state recognized tribes and uh, several others after. So you're dealing with so many indigenous people across so many nations with different traditions. But I know so many of us turn to Billy Mills as kind of like a beacon of light. And I had the privilege of interviewing him for my podcast and recounting, um, you know, his Olympic experience and different things like that with him. And it was super inspiring to hear from a native runner who was from a really different community than mine and get to understand like what it was like to kind of come up and running in a predominantly white space. And he had some really fascinating reflections on that uh, for me on the women's side. I, of course, have to mention Patty Dillon, who I who I know has been involved in um, some New York Roadrunner stuff over over time, but she is an incredible uh, Native native distance runner as well, and she was really dominant in the 70s, and I've had the chance to interview her on panels and, and live events and stuff like that, and it's so inspiring to hear from Patty because she truly was one of the only Native women um, existing in the space when she was, and I think that was a really, really incredible moment for me to get to meet her and talk to her and understand what it was like to train in those conditions and Then also, of course, Verna Volker, who runs Native Women Running today, uh, is not a professional runner, but is a professional community builder, (laughs) I think, and does an incredible job cultivating community uh, on Instagram, online, but also in person. And Verna joined me this year um, at the New York City Marathon opening ceremonies, where we participated in the land acknowledgement. And I think I always just see her around uh, Indian country, you know, doing running stuff alongside me. And I think she's become a really great friend and colleague in the space for me. So I have so much respect for a lot of the native women who have come up through running that I've been able to interview. Um, Alvina Begay is another runner that comes to mind for me, uh, has also run the New York city marathon and that's a big part of her, um, her running career. But uh, what just what a privilege to be able to bring their stories to light on the podcast that I had and learn you know, directly from them. In many cases,
1: the podcast is called grounded. So, uh, urge folks to check that out. It sounds amazing. I'm sure you're a great host Danae. You're I'm, I'm definitely going to definitely download it myself. I can't wait to hear some of these conversations. What about your running Danae? I know you were, uh, hoping to run the marathon here in New York, the TCS New York city marathon in 2023, some, some injuries maybe got in your way as often happens to talk about that and what your own goals are as a runner
4: yeah unfortunately um, i 've been uh, racked with injury here it's it 's really been a tough journey for me because when I started the podcast, I was so motivated, I was running a lot and i I think in many odd ways, the podcast actually did end up taking away from my running in um, more than I would have liked to admit, and I did end up having to take like a hiatus from the podcast in order. To reconnect with my own running. I had done these weekly episodes, which I'm sure you all know how much work goes into stuff like this and um, doing, doing that solo all the time. I was having all of this awesome inspiration coming my way, but I was working so much that I couldn't even really enjoy it and get out on the run. And I felt like I was missing the point maybe a little bit of it. So I was trying to reconnect with running, but, you know, I had doctors even in high school tell me that running would probably become an issue from me in my 30s and 40s. And that was really clear to me since I was young because I have accessory navicular syndrome. So that essentially, in short, means that I have accessory navicular bones, um, which are just like small. You, You can't really like tell or see them, but I essentially have two small internal bones, one on each foot that are like fused to my navicular bone. Um, And it's, it's like a congenital thing. And it was something that really caused super flat feet, lots of injuries. That's kind Mm. of the, the sum of it. And I've been dealing with that, you know, in many ways since high school, but it's really kind of reared its head in my thirties as was promised. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, that's been an issue.
1: (laughs) Hey, I always tell people getting to the starting line of these races is a huge accomplishment. Uh, and it's, it's hard. It is very hard to get to the starting line. I've tried and failed myself to get to the starting line of some marathons. So I know exactly how that feels. All right, Danae. So, you know, in wrapping up, I mean, what's one thing you think people should know about running in the Native American community, especially among women? What, what's the thing that, that people wouldn't know that you think they should know about it?
4: That's a tough question, but a a good question. I think um, I think I really my goal, especially with the podcast and just with my the online platform that I had through the podcast, was to demonstrate how important. Native people and communities have been to running history. I think as we see running, you know, in its modern form, um, there are still Native runners out there carrying on that tradition. Um, myself, people in my family, but also a lot of the people that I was able to interview and bring to light, uh, Native people are still very much here and present in the community, and many of our cultures, you know go back generations uh, of not just spiritual running but also competitive running is a big part um, of many traditions so I really want to make it clear to people that native runners they have been here they were a huge foundational part of running um, and they continue to be
0: And well I know injuries is also part of sports, so but don't lose hope. And uh, you have touched so many people's lives through your podcast and uh, keep on running strong. But can you tell us, like, what's the longest run that you have done? I know you were targeting for a, a marathon, twenty twenty-three, the TCS New Year's Marathon, but what is the longest run that you have done so far?
4: I didn't get too far in my marathon journey, um, before the pandemic hit. So in 2020, when I had planned to run, so I didn't really get, you know, deep into marathon running. Um, so it, because of that, probably the longest runs I've really done have been half marathons. I've done three of them. It was actually fun to hear Rob mention some of the the races that are steeped in women's history for uh, New York Roadrunners because I've done both the MasterCard 10K and the Real Simple um, Women's Half. So I have had a great time doing races like that, usually in New York, so several half marathons. So 13.1 is my, my distance where I've tapped out at.
0: <laughs> and can you also tell us a little bit of your role with the New York Roadrunners?
4: Yeah, uh, I've been a part of the New York Roadrunners Contributor Circle. I was actually the inaugural member of the Contributor Circle, and I think that was maybe in 2022, if I remember correctly. And I have been writing blog posts for New York Roadrunners and then also involved in some of the opening ceremonies, Parade of Nations organization. Um, Getting a land acknowledgement going there for the past two years um, was really a... Uh, a heavy lift, but really fun work and getting to collaborate with you all has always been just super fun for me. I've been very grateful for that. Uh, opportunity. And I've met a lot of folks on your team and just had a great time. Shout out to Gordon um, who has just been lovely for me as a as a mentor and as an editor of my writing at New York Roadrunners. So just having a really strong connection in that community. I would love to be in New York more so I could run uh, more races with you all. But the time that I've spent there, I got to announce a little bit at the Parade of Nations this year. And that was a really fun experience as well.
1: All right. Well, Danae, it's great talking to you. We love having you as part of the community, the contributor circle. You add a, a really important perspective um, when we're talking about running in general, women's running in particular, as we are with this uh, special episode for Women's History Month. So thank you. Hope you get healthy. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we, we know that battle, but keep at it, keep working it. And we can't wait to see you back in New York at a race real soon.
4: Thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. Meb, you were one of the first people ever on my podcast. So it's great to be on a podcast recording with you again. And uh, Rob, it's always always lovely to chat and catch up. And yeah, I appreciate you all so much.
1: Thank you, Danae. Appreciate you. Danae Dormy, a member of the Navajo Nation, the host of the podcast, Grounded, and a great way to ring in Women's History Month. Now it's time for our member moment, and it is a timely member moment because this weekend, one of our members is going for her sixth star in Tokyo. Natalie Dorsett is a member of Team for Kids. She's also a coach with us as well, and she's got a big, big weekend coming up as she goes for that sixth star. Natalie, welcome. How are you?
2: I am very, very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited.
1: <laughs> well, you should be excited uh, as you go for that big star number six. So what is your hope and your plan for the weekend and for Tokyo? Talk about what you're hoping for in your, your big race.
2: I want to be able to soak it in. So I haven't set a time goal like I normally do on races because this is my six-star And it has so much meaning for me. It's my sixth star, but also I am running to represent Trinidad and Tobago. And currently there are no women that have six stars from Trinidad and Tobago. So I'm very excited to be changing the stats. And there are two other women that have five stars. I don't know if they're running as well. If they are, it's going to be such a party if we all (laughs) get six stars at the same time because Trinidadians make a party anywhere. But I'm very much looking forward to running it for Trinidad and uh, to honor my dad, my dad's memory.
0: Well, you should be very proud of yourself. That's amazing accomplishment. I don't have the six stars yet. So you got me beat there. Um, Well, can you tell us when you first started running in 2012? Did you ever imagine that you would be a marathoner? especially as your Trinidadan who, you know, like you say, women have not done as many besides the sprints and a, as a marathoner. Can you walk us through that?
2: I absolutely did not think I was going to be a marathoner. I thought I was going to maybe run a couple of 5Ks here and there. And I also thought that um, people that look like me didn't run marathons. And I was literally at a race after maybe it was a 5K saying, my people don't run, I'm from the Caribbean, my people don't run marathons. And a
0: bunch of people went by from BGR. You know, they said Hussein Bolt, uh, you know, not Jordanian, but Jamaica. And he said, he said, if the land was big enough, he would be a, a marathoner, <laughs> you know, not a hundred meter or 200 meter runner. But is, uh, you know, as other sports have been impactful in the sprints, I'm a good friends with uh, Otto Balden, who was my teammate at UCLA. And you know, great, you know, medalists in the Olympics and medalists at the world championships. How are you changing that perspective for you, not only for women, but for men also as a pioneer of being a marathoners in Trinidad and Tobago?
2: There are a few more distance runners now in Trinidad coming up, which is nice. There's even a marathon in Trinidad and Tobago, which looks incredibly hard, very hilly, very hot. But we do have some strong marathoners out of Trinidad now. And um, hopefully, we have people that start approaching the Olympic standards. We do have some people getting there. But hopefully, in the next few years, we'll actually make it all the way.
1: Natalie, you have a nickname for yourself, the Laughing Runner. And we get a lot of stories on this podcast about people who find different ways to kind of dig deep and overcome those Doubts that we all have in the course of running. I guess for you, laughing is how you do it. Like talk about what what it means to be a laughing runner.
2: I try and run joyously, like run like a kid. You see kids when they start to, as soon as they can walk, they're running, they're laughing, they're joyful in the process. They're not stressed about it. They don't take themselves too seriously. They let go and enjoy it. So I very much like to laugh, holler, run like a kid, frolic. Just enjoy the process of it. It doesn't have to be something, even if you have serious goals, you don't need to take yourself seriously. And definitely relaxing into the process of it, being joyous, is going to get you further.
1: We talk also, Natalie, a lot on this podcast about what you said earlier, that you didn't see people who looked like you, right, who were running marathons. You were from the Caribbean, there isn't a huge tradition of distance running there. It's definitely more of a sprinting culture down there. There's, I've had so many great sprinters and even middle distance runners. What does it mean for you to actually try to be one of those people that folks coming up behind you can look at and say, oh, here's a woman from Trinidad and Tobago who ran all six stars? Do you think you can you know, maybe give folks, you know, younger you know, men and, and especially women, uh, a reason to try this sport?
2: Absolutely. Since I started running, because I was sort of known as a, as a couch potato. So since I started running, a lot of friends started running. I encouraged a lot of people. That's why I became a coach. By the time it was maybe the 30th person saying, okay, I see you're running. I'm running now. What do I do? I was like, wait a second, hold on. I don't know. So that's why I went and got all these certifications so I wouldn't break anybody essentially. So definitely just me being out there And me running, playing my soca music, having a ball definitely is shining a light and getting other people to realize that they can do it as well, especially since I didn't start till later on in life. I didn't start distance running till I was maybe 46 or something. I'm 57 now.
4: Mm.
2: So a lot of people see that, wait a second, if she can do it, maybe there's a chance I can do it as well.
1: We're so grateful to you, Natalie. Not just for for being a runner with Team for Kids, and you've been raising funds that are so important for our youth and community programs at New York Roadrunners, but also as a coach in the program. Talk about what being a part of the Team for Kids community has meant, and and what it means to be a coach there, also.
2: It, but running is life changing, right? So. I had all these certifications and I was just sort of helping friends and family until the New York City Marathon 2020, was it 21, the anniversary year. And I wound up not being able to run and I had to walk. And I was like, I'm just going to enjoy it anyway. And I met someone during that run who is an ultra runner, Tommy Ribs, who had been in a coma, had to learn to walk all over again. And that was his first event back since learning to walk again. And he sort of encouraged me to lean into my coaching because our conversation we were having, he was like, wait a second, are you a coach? You're really good at this. You should do this more. And that's when I decided I would lean into it. And I had always had an affinity, had a lot of friends with team for kids. And it's such an amazing program. The funds raised give back in so many ways that I decided to take a chance and apply to be a team for kids coach. And it has been life changing again, right?
1: We love having you. It's, it's, it's great. It's such a great community for those who haven't done it. You know, I come to the breakfast, uh, before a lot of the races, I won't be in Tokyo, but, uh, our race director, Ted Metellus will be there. So nice. I'm sure he'll greet you, but you know, it's just the camaraderie of that group, you know, and, and, and so many of them have run, you know, race after race after race together. So it really is a family and, uh, it's, it's, it's just great to see that. It's been one of the things I've really enjoyed uh, getting to know in my year plus here at Roadrunners is how great that group is. And Natalie, you're a big part of it. So uh, I look forward to seeing you get that beautiful six-star medal around your neck this weekend. That's going to be a big one.
2: I'm excited. I'm so excited. Yeah. And it's great to be able to get the six-star running with Team for and giving back in another way, right?
1: Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you. So thank you so much. Meb, last question for Natalie.
0: Natalie, congratulations. I've been a Team Fort kids I've been an ambassador for Team 4Kids for, for many years, uh, almost 10 years now. You know, you have touched people's lives through the fundraising for that. I give back to the New York Kids Running Program and also as a coach. And uh, when you get a great sense of purpose when you're running the Tokyo Marathons, you know, I know you're going to be celebrating, not uh, getting a sixth star, but wish you all the best. Uh, you know, how has that, you know, you started late in your career, to start running and what two, one or two lessons that you can give back to the kids why should it should be you know with team for kids passing on the baton to the younger generation what would be your advice
2: to start running as soon as you can it's great for not only your physical but your mental health and it helps keep it helps you learn how to manage stress and have managed difficulties that you might face in life. So running gives you lessons for life. And I wish I had started sooner.
0: Well, I started when I was in high school. And I didn't know what you know, like, I was not aware running was a sport. I thought it was a soccer game and chasing a ball. <laughs> and I said, Who are those crazy people that are running and not chasing anything. So now we are all three of us <laughs> here and our those crazy runners who done marathons, have marathons, and uh, it's a blessing. It really is a beautiful sport that we have, and, and, and we give back as much as we can to the young generation because running is seen as a punishment sometimes. We're late for something for a game and things like that, but it's a goal setting, a perseverance, hard work, and time management that gives back so much, and it's going to help them be an even better students. So thanks for your – been a great example to that.
2: Thank you very much.
1: All right, Natalie Dorset, our member of the week. Thank you, Natalie, and good luck in Tokyo. We'll see you on the other side.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Time now for today's Meb
1: Minute. And Meb, we've heard a lot of runners on the show the last few weeks talk about their training partners. Of course, Connor Mance and Clayton Young, they are like training partners extraordinaire as they both made the Olympics as partners. And then, of course, today, Emily Sisson was talking about training with Molly Huddle and also with her husband, What are your recommendations,
0: Meb, for training partners? Why have one and how do you find a good one? Training partners are very crucial to be the best version of yourself. You know, you might even pass the torch to the next person, as Molly uh, and Emily have done, and then also with Connor and Clayton. It is something that you meet every day. I know I had the great pleasure to train with Ryan Hall, Abdi Abdurrahman, or Dan Brown, and so many others, but they were more like temporary thing, but if you can have consistency year, year to year, it's just amazing because they help be the best version of yourself. They're there for you through the good and the bad. They Even though the coach is there, so like, hey, that was a tough one for you, hang in there. And other things is that they can predict how you're going to do because you are training together in the same place, and if he or she are in different uh races you can predict how well you're gonna do so i think it's very important to have training partners and even when i made the 2004 olympic games i even considered going to boulder colorado to train with alan culpepper but i didn't take my 1973 for the ltd was gonna make it that far so i decided <laughs> to stay in mammoth and and he couldn't come because he had already a family but also the altitude was not high enough for me, but you, you, you know, no turn, don't leave any ro- rocks unturned to be able to get the best out of yourself. It's so important to be able to be there for each other.
1: Absolutely. Gets you there, gets you up, the accountability of having somebody to run with. It's uh, definitely makes a big difference. All right, Matt that was great. And it was a great episode of set the pace to launch women's history month here at New York road runners. A huge thank you today to all of our guests, Emily Sisson, Danae Dormy and Natalie Dorset. If you liked the episode, please go ahead and subscribe, rate it, leave a comment for the show on whatever platform you're listening on. This really helps us and it helps others find the show as well. Hope you all have a great weekend of running and we'll see you next week on Set the Pace.